Thank you, Kevin. I just, this has nothing to do with this, but I think about this every time. Does anyone notice the uniform? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's probably Scottish people that start with this. <laughs> and that's the Scottish national animal. <laughs> I love my brother. <laughs> but I'm sure there were uniforms once upon a time. Anyway, I love that that's up there. I look at that every week. Let all that you do be done in love. So Paul brings his magnificent letter to an end. And as he does so, he places in the middle of his closing remarks, one of the most perfectly concise summations ever. Let all that you do be done in love. A sentence that I hope was constantly on the minds of those of us who were here last Sunday, because that was the entirety of my sermon last Sunday. Nine words, my shortest sermon ever. So for those of you who like to fall asleep during my sermons, Kim, it was a good Sunday to miss. <laughs> I'm sleeping. <laughs> you never could have fallen deep in that word. It was probably going to be the only sermon I ever give where people will be able to say, I remember everything David said that Sunday. However, seriously, if these words are constantly in our mind, it's not a bad thing. Because this is, this is the heart of the matter. This is the point of the Christian faith, I think. And so, as St. Paul wraps up this amazing letter... It's as if he's saying, everything I just wrote can be summed up in this one sentence. If you remember nothing else that I've written to you, please remember this, for it's the heart of the matter. God is love. God loves always. Let us love like God. So, we started looking at 1 Corinthians in 2012, and this is the last Sunday we'll be in 1 Corinthians. We're ending the series today. And for me, anyway, it's been an incredible journey. I'm glad we went through it together. I've enjoyed the process. It's changed me, and hopefully it's been a good journey for you as well, even if, you know, for however long part of that journey you've been here. And over those years, we've seen that this was just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, a masterpiece of composition, I think we've discovered. Paul put together these five essays to deal with a lot of the issues that the church in Corinth was going through, a lot of the issues that we go through in our own lives. And he wove these essays together, and it's just, it, it's a masterpiece of writing, as we've seen. And now he comes to make some closing remarks here in chapter 16. So 16 is not part of the composition. He's, he's, it's as if he's, he's, he's looked at everything he's written, it's been composed, it's exactly where he wants it, and then he says, now I've just got to tell the Corinthians a few more things. So they're post notes. He, he tells them, listen, take some money, collection, so we can give it to the poor church in Jerusalem. He talks to them about his travel plans. He lets them know Timothy's coming and to take care of him. He reminds them that Apollos is not coming, but that's Apollos' decision, not his, because remember that was one of the things we looked at. The Some Corinthians were following Apollos, some were Paul. So all of these things. But even though this closing chapter is sort of post notes, Paul remains committed to the overall composition of the letter. And he ties it together brilliantly with this statement. This, let all that you do be done in love. And he, he, he has one, two other statements as well. One right before this and one at the very end. And we're going to look at those three statements today to see how they just continue this beautiful thread that you can find throughout this entire letter that Paul sent to the so, when Paul opened his letter, he did so by immediately referencing the love of God 
that compels and defines his own life. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. See, consider Sosthenes. In Acts chapter 18, we get a glimpse into Paul's life in Corinth. Remember, when he wrote this letter, he wasn't in Corinth. He had left Corinth. He was now in Ephesus, and he was writing to the Corinthians back there. And in, chap in, in Acts 18, it tells us a little bit what life was like for Paul when he lived in Corinth. Well, one of the people we come across is Sosthenes. And he seems to have been a leader of the Jews in Corinth who hated Paul and brought charges against him, probably trying to get him at least arrested or maybe worse. Fortunately for Paul, the proconsul of the area, that's Gallio, was seemingly sympathetic to Paul and, and this new faith. And, <coughs> and so he wouldn't hear the complaint. And this was such a total embarrassment to the Jews that they beat Sosthenes in an attempt to save some face. So that's a little glimpse. And the crowd there turned on Sosthenes and on here and beat him in front of the proconsul. Now, if this is the same man that we have mentioned here at the beginning of the Corinthian letter, think about what this means. This Sosthenes is with Paul in Ephesus. Many scholars think Sosthenes is the one that's doing the actual physical writing of 1 Corinthians. It seems Paul didn't write it. If you notice when uh, Kevin was reading, it said, I, Paul, am writing this greeting in my own hand. He probably put his own writing at the bottom. He probably wasn't capable. His penmanship was probably so horrible or whatever why he didn't write. So Sosthenes now, his brother. So think about what this must mean if it's the same person. Paul lived out the theology of the cross. He lived out love. He lived like Christ. He embraced his enemy. He forgave him. He loved him into the kingdom of God. This guy that wanted to have him thrown in prison or perhaps worse. Bailey imagined, Bailey, the Middle Eastern scholar we've often used during this study, imagines a wonderful scene here of Paul going that very same night to Sosthenes' house to help care for his wounds that he received during the public meeting, to embrace him, to say, I forgive you and I love you and how can I help? Now, of course, there's no way to prove this is the same man, but here's the thing. Without any further clarification in Scripture, this is the only time Sosthenes is mentioned in these two references. And because it's incredibly consistent with the teachings of Jesus Christ, love your enemy, and it's very consistent with Paul's writing, I think it's a possibility worth looking at because it can only inspire us to let all that we do be done in love. This is certainly what defined Paul's life. Let all that you do be done in love. So now, let's notice this other statement he makes. It's the very last line of his letter. He says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Here's this other thread that's going through this brilliant letter that he has written. These Corinthians he is giving his love to. These Corinthians. Remember, not all is well with the believers in Corinth. It's been a while since we've been in in the book, but you'll remember quickly there is open division among them as well as a growing opposition to Paul his teachings and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ the problems in Corinth that we studied can be summed up in one brief statement, loving others was not informing the way they lived loving others was not informing the way they lived 
Love was either being totally misconstrued or defined outside of the cross, or simply it was being ignored altogether. The believers were living for themselves, their own wants and desires, and not for each other. And not for each other. You know, I used to say something a lot when Cana first started. Those of you who were over in the first two rooms at Worcester State will remember this. Which, by the way, next week I think is seven years ago, right? Wow, seven years Cana's been around. That's awesome. Anyway, if you were there in those first two little classrooms we used to meet in, one of the things I used to say a lot, and I should, I should start saying it again, I think, is, and, and it's good with, with this final chapter of Paul's here. Because I used to say, remember, church starts at whatever time it started at. I think at that time it was about 10.30 probably. Church starts at 10.30, but fellowship starts at 10. And I would say to people, come early. Come early and live into each other's lives. And then what I would say was, and I say, and listen, even if you don't think you need them, think about if they need you. In Scripture, church, two metaphors used often. One is we're family. We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. As real as any other family, according to Scripture anyway. And I know that's a hard concept for us in the States because, you know, we, we have this rather modern understanding of family and it's the, the nuclear family, the father and mother mother or father or kids, but it's that instant, that, that's it. And then the blood, and then everything else is secondary. But scripture doesn't really teach that. that that's a very modern Western American concept. That is not an ancient concept of family. And to study scripture, especially if we're going to identify as Christians, family is, family is here. This is family. And another metaphor that's used often for church is the body. The body. So, the body needs everything. You know, you talk to someone whose you know, second toe in is broken and that affects everything. And it's just a tiny little toe. And, you know, you can go through the whole body. And, and that metaphor is great. So I guess what I want to encourage people to do is I want you to think about church that way. You know, like Alice prayed this great prayer about the band and their commitment to our community. And, you know, I know that's how they think about Canaan, because that's why they're here every week for us. I know that. So when you wake up on Sunday morning and you're deciding if you want to go to church or not, or when you're doing your calendar and of the weekend you're deciding how is church going to fit in with my calendar, I, I want to encourage us as, as Christians do a little paradigm shift on that. And not ask ourselves, is this what I need or is this what I want this week? But say, do I have a brother or sister that needs me this week? Do I have someone that needs me to be there? Because I'm part of the body. I'm their family. Is there someone that needs me Sunday to love them? To ask them how they're doing? To just be with them and worship? what we are. Listen, I, I, I come to church for myself. I know this is my job, but I come here every Sunday to my main 
purpose for being at church on Sunday is a selfish reason. It's not because it's my job. It's not. It's for communion. I, I need communion. That's why I go to church. And if Canaan didn't exist, I would go to churches where communion was offered every week. So that's my selfish reason for coming to church. I need it. And now that we've moved to Greenville People's Church, I love it. I get communion twice. I come here at 8.30 for the communion service, which is a beautiful little service in this space. And then I'm here for ours. So I get wanting to be at church for yourself, and I get being in seasons of need for ourselves. But beyond that, I don't, I think, to identify as a Christian is to be in church for others. You know, one of the things I hear a lot from people, and I have good friends too, that love the Lord and, and love their faith. But I hear this a lot now that we're in that, this postmodern phase of, of Christianity. Whatever postmodernism is. And I hear, I don't need church. Okay. That might be true, but maybe church needs you. Isn't that the point of family? To give to each other and to love each other. And church isn't just defined by the Sunday morning piece. Don't get me wrong. It's outside of that as well. But the Sunday morning piece is a big part of it. For a lot of us, it's where we see each other. You know, I'd love for there to be 15 days in a week and 50 hours a day because I'd see a lot more of you. As it is, my wife got back from Minnesota Tuesday night. I couldn't even pick her up. I had to have a friend get her at the airport, which I'm still hearing about. And I was working Tuesday night till after 9, Wednesday night till after 9, Thursday night till after 10, and finally Friday night we had dinner together and I found out about how my weekend was with our daughter. That's my life. So if we had more time, I'd love to see all of you more. I'd like to see my wife more right now. But what I'm saying is, I love when I come here and I see you. It means a lot to me. You mean a lot. So far off my notes, but here's the thing the Corinthian church wasn't living for each other. They were living for themselves. Themselves. Instead of forgiving and offering grace, they were suing each other. The rich were treating the poor horribly. Spiritual gifts were being used to tear down the community instead of build it up. There were all sorts of sexual issues, both inside and outside of marriage. There was gluttony and drunkenness at the community table. The worship services had devolved into yelling matches where no one was listening to anyone. Rhetoric and style were more important than substance and truth. The cross was marginalized, the resurrection was denied, and the partisan following of certain teachers and theologies was dividing the community. And yet, even these folks, Paul gives all he all his love. Because all Paul does, he does he models his own command. Paul knows there is nothing in the Corinthian community that cannot be overcome, that cannot be overcome by them. All those issues go away. All the issues we looked at in the form that he wrote about go away and everyone starts doing all things Now, just before this command, Paul had made this statement. The, the second, this third thread that captures the whole letter together. Stand firm in the faith. 
So let's look again at how Paul started his letter. In verse 2, he says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Notice that church of God. The church belongs to God. Not to them, the Corinthians, not to us, not to Paul, not to Apollos, not to any pastor, any leader, any minister, any organization. The church belongs to God. It's God's church. Paul's trust and confidence is in God, not himself. He started the church. It doesn't matter to him. He knows it's God's church. Then Paul reminded them that they are set apart as God's holy people. <clears throat> Remember, that's, that's what sanctified you. It's just set apart. Remember, these are the incredibly messy people that we just reminded ourselves how messy they were. They make up the Corinthian church, yet he still calls them holy people saints. Or like in our video that we have used consistently through this series that gave Dave a great idea for Halloween costume this morning. <laughs> kings and queens of promise. That's what we all are. We're kings and queens of Daily writes, remarkable. Clearly for Paul, a saint meant a person who had received the Holy Spirit and not a person who had reached some undefined stratospheric level. The troublesome Corinthians were saints. Why? Because they belonged to God. They belonged to God. It is God's work to save us, to redeem us, to transform us, and only by standing firm in that and we move forward into lives of Christ-like love. And this is why the letter opens, when, why his letter opens, the name Jesus Christ is used in one variation or another ten times. And if we understand, as Paul did, that Jesus is God, then we realize as we read it, Paul mentions him no less than 18 times in his opening four sentences. 18 times in his opening four sentences. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so, as he started the letter, so he ends his letter. And his very last thought that he writes in his letter is, in Christ Jesus. It's not about us and our cleanliness or our messiness. It's not about our massive successes or our failures. It's not about any strength or weakness we may have. It's about Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul was able to live out an imitation of Jesus Christ. He stood firm in the faith. He was constantly aware that it was not about him and what he could do. It was about God and what God does in him. And he had a profound trust that God is faithful, regardless of our lack of faithfulness. In his opening, in his opening to his letter, he said that in verse nine: "God is faithful all the time, even when we're not faithful." It's one of the most hopeful things to stand firm in. Don't ever let your mind think God is not faithful. He's always faithful to us, regardless of where we're at. <coughs> so I think if we can keep that same constancy of awareness, that same standing firm in the faith, 
trusting the good news that His grace is sufficient for us always. Always. He doesn't give us grace because we're good. He gives us grace because He gives us grace. Always. I think if we can stand firm in that week so we would be able to move more fully into letting all things we do be done in love. So Witherington in, in a summation of the book of Corinthians wrote this. Being a Christian involves being set apart from the world and its dominant values and behavior patterns. Paul envisions a worldwide subculture of Christians that stands out from its environment in both belief and behavior. The two B's of Christianity. Belief and behavior. And that is exactly what it was for Paul. Standing firm in the faith, that is the belief. That's the trusting that God is the one working in us, that He alone saves and transforms. It's believing in His grace for always. And that belief will allow us to be truly like Christ in behavior, letting all 